So if you, uh, if you have your bulletin and you, uh, you look in, inside the flap there, if, if you're prone to taking notes, you'll see that the title of the message this morning is, We've Been to the Mountaintop. We've Been to the Mountaintop. And if you're wondering why the title maybe sounds a little bit familiar, the answer is yes. It's a nod to Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s famous speech. Uh, he gave a speech that he titled, I've Been to the Mountaintop. And he gave that speech actually on April 3rd, 1968, which was the night before he was assassinated in Memphis, Tennessee by James Earl Ray. Um, it's Black History Month, and so I thought, well, hey, it seems like an appropriate time to, to give a nod like that. But that's not the only reason why. The, the reason why I titled the message that way is because that phrase was the first thing that popped into my head uh, when I was studying this week, this passage, Micah chapter 4. Micah in this passage is taking us up to the mountain of God this morning. He's calling us to, to go on a bit of a hike with him and to ascend to the summit. And as we get there, we're going to see a view unlike any view that we could ever hope to imagine. Anybody ever been to uh, the top of a mountain and, and just gazed out on the majestic view that you, that you find when you go to the top of a mountain? I know we live in the Midwest, there's not a lot of mountains to climb around here. Maybe some of you have been fortunate enough to be in other parts of the country or other parts of the world where there are big mountains and awesome views to look out upon. Uh, if you've ever done it, you know there's really nothing quite like that. There's nothing quite like it. I mean, there's lots of, there's lots of beauty in this world that can be found in lots of different kinds of settings, but none are better than a mountain view, Right? None are better than a mountain view. My, I, I have a, a favorite mountain view. I've, I've been able to do this on several occasions, go to tops of mountains. Uh, but my favorite view is from the top of uh, actually a ski lift in Telluride, Colorado. At the top of lift number nine, there's this very famous view there. And if any of you are old enough to remember, in the 1970s, there was an Olympic gold medalist skier named Franz Klammer. Franz Klammer uh, once remarked that this view at the top of lift number nine in Telluride was, in his opinion, the most beautiful view in the world. And the reason why he say that is obvious when you stand up there because you, you, you get to the top and you look out and you can see several 14,000 foot peaks all around you and this amazing valley floor below and just awesome. It's, it's a breathtaking view. Now I say that Knowing that this is true this morning, the view that we get in Micah 4 is better. It's better. And we're ready for a good view, aren't we? If you've been with us for the last few weeks, you know that the view's been pretty desolate, right? There's been a lot of judgment, there's been a lot of rebuke uh, against the people of God. It's been heavy as we've gone through Micah and mountains have played a significant part of the, the, the picture there of God's judgment. So, so if, if you're wandering around Micah chapters 1, 2, and 3, you would say mountains don't seem like they're a very good place to be around. Mountains aren't good to be near in those chapters. Let me, let me point you back uh, to Micah chapter 1. Remember in verses 3 and 4, God says, For behold, the Lord is coming out of His place and will come down and will tread upon the high places of the earth. This was, a, this was God's judgment for idolatry. High places being these high places, literally mountaintops, where altars were lifted up to false gods. And He says He's going to come down and He's going to tread upon those. And it says then the mountains will melt under Him. 
And then we just looked at last week in Micah chapter 3, the last verse, verse 12, therefore because of you, the people of God, and because of their sin, Zion shall be plowed as a field. Zion is a, a mountain. Jerusalem shall become a heap of ruins. And the mountain of the house, a wooded height. The mountain of the house there refers to the temple site. And what God is basically saying is that you're, the temple, my temple, because you've so desecrated it with all this idol worship, is going to be overrun and it's going to, it's going to be overgrown by nature. It's, it's going to be a ruin. It's going to be a wasteland. It will be a wooded height. The, the, the trees are going to overtake the temple. So mountains have been kind of a scene of judgment. But as we get to chapter 4, we see that Micah turns a corner. At least for a little while. This mountain of the house, again in, in chapter 3, verse 12, which will be overrun, we hear in chapter 4, is also going to be restored. And it's this mountaintop, this restored mountaintop, that Micah invites us up to the top of to look out from. And what we actually see from that vantage point is not just the immediate scenery or the topography in front of us. What we actually are pointed to is something that's in the future. It's a vision that we're getting. It's not just a view. It's a vision. A vision of the future. And it's a future that is a very glorious future. So look at chapter 4 with me. I'm going to read the first five verses. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains. And it shall be lifted up above the hills and peoples shall flow to it. And many nations shall come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that He may teach us His ways that we may walk in His paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between many peoples and shall decide for strong nations far away and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. But they shall sit every man under his vine and under his fig tree and no one shall make them afraid. For the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. For all the peoples walk, each in the name of its God, but we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. It's a much more pleasant thing to read than we've been reading over the last few weeks, isn't it? What I want to do this morning is just show us four things from the mountaintop this morning. Four Four things that we'll see or we, we can see as we gaze out from that place. And they're all good news. Okay? They're all good news. So here's the first thing I want us to see this morning. It's that God's promises will never be broken. God's promises will never be broken. If you look back at verse 1, you see that there is a statement of promise here. And it's a pretty incredible and mind-blowing one at that. Look at it again. It says, it shall come to pass. It shall come to pass that the mountain of the Lord shall be established. Now what's most astonishing and even shocking about this promise is that it comes 
Again, on the heels of this strong rebuke that we've been, we've been looking at in chapters 1 to 3. If we consider what's been said in 1 to 3, we know that the sin of God's people has been so great. Their sexual sin, the social injustice that they've, they've been guilty of has been such an affront to others and an offense to God that it would seem that the, the righteous judgment and anger towards His people would be unappeasable. You've sinned greatly. We'd have every reason to expect that God would just say, I am finished with you. I'm so righteously angry with you that there's, there's no future for you. I mean, why should God give them such hope in the midst of such terrible disobedience and rebellion? Well, there's an answer to that question that's good news. And the answer is this. It's because God made a covenant with His people. He made a covenant with His people to never leave or forsake them. And God always keeps His promises. Look again at the end of verse 5. All the peoples will walk each in the name of its God. Everybody who, who, who's out there in the culture, in the pagan world, they walk in the name of their, their gods. But, but we know, we will walk in the name of the Lord our God for about a week. For a few minutes. No, he says, so forever and ever. How could they say that? They haven't been walking in the name of the Lord their God at all. They could say it because God's covenant promise to them will be kept. And they can say confidently then, we'll walk in His name forever. Maybe you need to hear that this morning. Maybe these past several weeks of, of hearing about God's judgment against sin, about God's judgment against idolatry has been crushing to you. You've contemplated your own failings as you've sat here and you've, you've heard all these things that God has to say against His people and it just landed heavy on you. Now that's not to say that the passages that we've looked at so far in chapters 1-3 to haven't had some hope in them. And I know that the, the sermons preached from this pulpit haven't been without hope, but, but at the same time, I know that oftentimes hope is hard to hear for those who are feeling the weight of their sin. Maybe that's you. Maybe you feel a little bit like David in Psalm 51 when he laments, my sin is always before me. It's just always before me. And he says a little bit later there that, that his very bones feel like they're broken within him. So when that describes you, how can you believe the promises of God to complete His saving work in you will be accomplished. How do you believe that? When, especially when you know that, that, that our tendency to turn away from Him is, is so frequent, so powerful. How do we believe that God will keep His end of the covenant when we regularly don't keep ours? Listen, because this is very important. The covenant that God makes with His people is a covenant that depends on Him to keep, not us. The covenant that God makes with His people is a covenant that depends on Him to keep, not on us. That's a shocking statement. 
Right? That flies in the face of reason, but it's true. And I want you to consider this with me. When you think about God's covenant with Abraham back in Genesis chapter 15, and that, that's the covenant that serves as the, the basis for God's covenant with His people both in the Old Testament, Israel, and in the New Testament, the church. This covenant that God made with Abraham is the, is the foundational covenant that everything is built upon, even what we rest in here today. And, and I want you to notice that, that we see that God pledged an oath there to keep the covenant by Himself. Look on the screen. Genesis chapter 15. God said to Abram, bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And He brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. And when the sun had gone down, it was dark. Behold, a smoking firepot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram saying, to your offspring, I give this land. Now I want to explain the significance of that because there's a hugely significant thing that happened in that moment. So God has called Abram and He said, I'm going to make this covenant with you. And He says, go get these animals. Which would have been normal. Abraham would have understood what that meant. You get, you get these animals and you, and you cut them in half and you create like a pathway, kind of like this. And you've got half of the, the carcasses over here and half of the carcasses over there. And the idea is that the two people who are making that covenant, they walk side by side through those carcasses as a means to say, if any of us breaks this covenant, may this happen to us. May the curse fall on us if either I or you break this covenant. But God does something unique here. He says, Abram, cut the animals, make the path. But when it goes dark, God actually causes Abraham to rest and God sends symbols of His own presence to walk by Himself up that aisle. Which is to say, God is saying to Abraham, this covenant if it's broken, I'll bear the curse myself. And that's exactly what God has done. He didn't break the covenant, but we did. And God upheld His covenant promise by sending His Son Jesus to bear the curse alone. Jesus died on the cross for our sin, which means the covenant is upheld. The debt is paid. The promised land of salvation still belongs to God's people because God always keeps His promises. I love the words of Isaiah 54. That's why I had it read before the sermon today. Remember, Isaiah is preaching at the same time as Micah. They're contemporaries. They're speaking into the same group of people. Uh, Isaiah is speaking to Jerusalem at this exact same time. So these words are very applicable here. And this is what he says. I'll put it back up on the screen. Isaiah 54, 9 and 10. This is like the days of Noah to me, as I swore in the waters of Noah that no more go, that should no more go over the earth. So this is covenant language, right? He's saying, I swore to Noah that I was never going to flood the world again. I was never going to judge the world again in sin like this. That was a covenant that he remade with Noah. And he says, So I have sworn that I will not be angry with you. I will not rebuke you. 
For the mountains may depart and the hills may be removed, but My steadfast love shall not depart from you. My covenant of peace shall not be removed, says the Lord who has compassion on you. Praise be to God for His covenant-keeping love. And you might say, well, then why does God tell His people to keep the covenant? Why does He say, if you keep it, you will be My treasured possession? Doesn't that imply then that, that the, the, the blessings of the covenant are somehow conditional upon our keeping it? Our obedience? Well, the short answer is, no. Which again sounds very scandalous. But if you look at every single command that God gives in Scripture, every single command He gives, it's predicated on His grace. And we can look to the Ten Commandments as an example of this. Exodus 20 is where we find the Ten Commandments. We looked at them a little bit last Sunday. Look at how it begins. And God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Therefore, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that's in heaven above dot dot dot. He gives the Ten Commandments. What is it predicated on? Because I'm the God who saved you. I've saved you first. Therefore, Obey. Therefore, follow. Obedience to God is always a result of grace, not a means to earn it. Now surely there's consequences for disobedience. That's what we see in Micah's chapter 1-3. through Obedience is the fruit of genuine faith. Don't forget that. But obedience flows from salvation, not the other way around. Salvation doesn't flow from obedience. Obedience flows from salvation. We belong to God, Christians, because God initiated the relationship. We belong to Him because He chose us. Because He sent His Son for us. He did all the heavy lifting. When God made His covenant with His people, He swore on Himself to keep it. And the sacrifice of Jesus Christ is the evidence that we need that God keeps His oath. God always keeps His promises. That's the first thing we can get when we look out from this view and we see that this is, there's this crazy turn. <laughs> How do we go from judgment to this incredible view of the future, of glory, of hope? Because God keeps His promises. And that's tied into the second thing very closely, and that's this. God's grace to forgive sin is truly amazing. It's truly amazing. Look again at verses 1 and 2. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains. It shall be lifted up above the hills and people shall flow to it. Many nations are going to come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob that He may teach us His ways, that we may walk in His paths. What I want you to grasp from these two verses is that that again, even after the people had rebelled so much, even after they had sinned so greatly, there's still an invitation here from God to say, come home. Come home. God promises a way back to Him. Come back to My mountain. 
Keep learning. Keep walking. Keep receiving My grace. Do you remember the, the, the parable of the prodigal son from Luke chapter 15? We love that parable and we find it beautiful because of the extraordinary picture of the radical extravagance of grace. You have this prodigal son who, 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 who leaves the, the safety and security of his father and he goes off and, and takes his inheritance and he just wastes it on sinful living until he hits rock bottom, right? He's, he's humbled and he's afraid and he thinks at finally at last I, I've got to go home. I've got to go home. And he, but he, he worries about going home because he thinks if I go home, I mean, at, at, at best, at best, my father might treat me like one of the, the servants in his field. That, that I don't deserve to come back and, and have the standing and the status of a son that I had when I left. I've betrayed my father. And it's almost shocking then to see the extravagance then of the Father's forgiveness and grace and blessing lavished upon His Son. He says, Son, come home. Get a robe. Put it on Him. Get a ring. Put it on Him. Let's have a feast. Let's have a banquet. My Son's come home. That's what we see here in Micah chapter 4, verse 2. He's saying, yeah, my, my people have sinned greatly. And yes, there's consequences. But my love is greater still. He wants them to know that there's still a future to be had in His grace. We can come home. We can come home. The Father still loves us. We won't be cast out. He's faithful to forgive us our sin and set us back on the pathway of righteousness. Brothers and sisters, this is another promise from God that you can hold on to this morning. It's another promise that you can hold on to. Even you, who are so acquainted with the grief of your past sins. Even you. you know, I find Christians struggle so much and so often to believe this. And yet this is the, like the most foundational basic promise of the Gospel. Why is it that we find it so hard to believe that we can go home? Why is it that we find it so hard to believe that, that God is gracious, that He does forgive us, that, that even when we waste the inheritance and we, we, just, we just act the fool and we think he, he wouldn't do anything but treat me like the bottom rung if He even lets me in. Why do we believe that? I, we believe it because shame and guilt are terrible strongholds in our lives. But we've got to hear anew the good news of God's grace. It's for sinners like you and me. Jesus bore our shame on the cross. He bore our shame and He frees us to let it go and to come home. I'm going to go back to that Isaiah passage because it says it there so beautifully. Fear not, for you will not be ashamed. Be not confounded. You will not be disgraced. You will forget the shame of your youth. There's a promise to believe. In overflowing anger for a moment, I hid my face from you. There's no, there's no doubt that, that sin has consequences. There's no doubt that, that we can disappoint the Father. 
But he says, with everlasting love, I will have compassion on you. Why? Because he's the Lord, our Redeemer. He's the God who redeems sin. God's grace is amazing. God's grace is shocking. It's scandalous. And it's real. Can you see it? Look at where we are. We're standing on the, on the mountaintop with Micah. He's called us up here and he's, and, he's, and he's pointing out in the distance and he's saying, can you believe this view? Can you believe this view? Look over there. That's, that's Mount Promise. God always keeps His promises. Look, look over there. That's Mount Grace. Isn't it amazing? And then, and then he, he turns and he says, there's, there's something else I want you to see. And I want you to see this because this is, this is beautiful. It's, in fact, it's this thing, this beautiful thing that, that is the reason why we can look out and see the promises and the grace of God. It's the reason why all the rest of this view is so majestic. And it's the third thing I want you to see. That the mountaintop is beautiful because from it we can see Jesus. Two lines I want to point out to you. Back in verse 1, remember it said there that this shall come to pass in the latter days. And at the end of verse 2, it says, for out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. So there's these two questions that kind of are begging to be asked and answered here. The first one is, when are these latter days? This is going to come to pass in the latter days. When is that? What does that mean? And the second question is, how... If, if the current temple in Jerusalem is going to be overrun and destroyed, remember we, we saw that in chapter 3, verse 12, this, this, this mount, the house of the mountain is going to be overrun. It's going to, you know, trees are going to overtake it. It's going to be gone. Then how does the word go out from Zion if the temple's gone? Well, to the first question, which is the when, when's the latter days? We know that for Micah, as he's writing this to his audience, this is a future look, right? He's looking to the future, but how far? How far in the future is this? Is this, is this looking all the way out? Is this a, a view of the new earth that will come at the end of the age? Is it still for us a future look, in other words? Well, the Apostle Peter actually answers this question in Acts chapter 2. And he answers it on the day of Pentecost when he quoted the minor prophets. As they were looking to these latter days, he explained to them that it's coming to pass now. Acts chapter 2. That's on the screen. He quotes, And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out My Spirit on all flesh, and your sons and daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall see dreams. Even on my male servants and my female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. Peter's saying, God has talked about these latter days for a long time now. And then he says there at the end of this message, after quoting this passage, he says, This Jesus God raised up, and of that we're witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. 
What is it that we're seeing? We're seeing, we're seeing the apostles standing up there and they're speaking in tongues that everybody can understand the praises of God and the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And they're going, are these guys drunk? And you say, no, you remember what the prophet said in the latter days? You're going to hear this. That's today. And you know why? It's because of Jesus whom we preach. That's what it was pointing to. So the latter days find their fulfillment in Jesus. The second question is then, how does this happen if, if the temple has been destroyed that the word shall go out from Zion? How is that fulfilled in Jesus? Well, it is fulfilled in Jesus. Let me explain. So go back to the days of Micah and Isaiah and they're prophesying about this judgment that's going to come. They're saying the Assyrian Empire is going to come. The Babylon Empire is going to come. They're going to overrun you. They're going to conquer you. They're going to exile you. This is the judgment of God. And just a few decades after this prophecy in Micah was given, that's what happened. The Babylonians came in and they destroyed the temple. They destroyed that temple that Solomon built. The, the prophecy of chapter 3, verse 12 was coming true. And it was unthinkable to God's people, of course. But again, this is what was prophesied. And Isaiah... Again, a contemporary also prophesied that there would be a day that it would be rebuilt. That after they were exiled and carried off, that they would be able to come back and this temple would be rebuilt. So maybe we could say that here in verse 2, that Micah is looking forward to the day when God's Word would go out from Jerusalem in that rebuilt temple that would happen after the exile. But there's a problem with that as an explanation. The problem is that when we read the book of, of Haggai, which was prophesying at that time when the exile had come back and the temple was rebuilt and, and he's talking about what happened, we know that the people were disappointed in it. They looked at the rebuilt temple and they were like, this temple is not like the first one. Solomon's temple was glorious and grand. This one's kind of not that great. They were disappointed. And so God told them through the prophets at that time, that a day was coming when the latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former. In other words, there's a day yet coming when this temple will have even a greater glory than Solomon's. And they're saying, we don't see it. And he's saying, wait. That's what Mike is pointing us to. That day. Again, in latter days. The latter days that Peter said were fulfilled in Christ. And what does Christ do? When Jesus comes... He says of Himself, I'm the new temple. Remember that? After he, he cleansed the temple of the money changers in John chapter 2. I'll put it up here on the screen. Jesus answered them. He said, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. And the Jews then said, it's taken 46 years to build this temple and you're going to raise it up in three days? And John says, but He was speaking about the temple of His body. When therefore He was raised from the dead, His disciples remembered that He had said this and they believed the Scripture and the Word that Jesus had spoken. He's the temple. That's what Micah is showing us. Mount Zion is the place where God dwells. And when we look to Mount Zion, ultimately, we see Jesus. The latter days will testify about Him. The true temple will be His body. 
And you know what else we see when we look to Mount Zion? We see the cross. Because that's where it was lifted up. And we see the resurrection because the tomb that Jesus' body was laid in after He was crucified, Joseph of Arimathea's tomb was, guess where? On the side of Mount Zion. This is where the Word of the Lord will go out from in Jerusalem through Christ. The Word of the Lord is the Gospel of Jesus Christ. So, in other words, to recap all that we're seeing as we gaze out from the mountain of God with Micah, we're seeing that the promises of God can never be broken. We're seeing that the grace of God to forgive sin is is amazing. And we're seeing that all of that grace and the fulfillment of all of God's promises find their center in Jesus Christ. So with that, don't forget the invitation. Come home. Come home. God forgives. Christ is the way. Come home. I know we're running a little short on time, but there's one last thing that Micah wants us to see from the mountaintop, and I'll cover this quickly, and that's this fourth idea is that life in the Redeemer, life in Christ, is truly the good life. Look at verses 3-5 to again. He shall judge between many peoples and shall decide for strong nations far away. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. But they shall sit every man under his vine and under his fig tree and no one shall make them afraid, for the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. And again, all the peoples will walk each in the name of its God, but we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. I just want you to see one thing here. Coming to Christ brings about complete restoration and renewal. If you think about all that was lost, in Israel and Judah because of their sin. All that was broken. We remember from chapters 1 and through 3 that there was, no, there was no justice. There was no peace. There was no provision for the poor. Their sin had destroyed all of that. But notice that Christ restores all of that. Chapter 4, verse 3, we see restored justice. He shall judge between many peoples. He'll decide. Justice returns. At the end of verse 3, we see peace returns. They shall beat their swords into plowshares. Their instruments of war, they don't need them for war. They're, They're for cultivation now. They're for growth. They're for harvest. He restores peace. And He restores provision. The poor were were being decimated and they were being uh, oppressed and they had nothing. And yet we see here in verse 4 that every man's going to sit under his own vine and under his own tree and no one's going to make him afraid. He's going to have his own and it'll be enough. 
restored provision. The, the, the point of this is to, is to remember that God's law is descriptive of the good life. And that the good life is found in the fulfillment of that law through Jesus Christ. In Christ, not only are our sins forgiven and our shame removed, but then because of that grace, we're enabled to walk in obedience. We're enabled to live the life of justice and peace and provision that He's called us to. That we're enabled by the power of His Holy Spirit within us to reflect what the law was always pointing them to. God's goodness. God's plan for their lives. And Mike is saying, when this day comes, when, when, when Christ's kingdom is, is brought about and the people are forgiven and the people are called home, and people not just of Israel and Judah, but, but from all over the world, the nations are going to come. We'll see a, a new day. And yeah, we could say, well, the, the, if we look at that and we say, you know, to see that happening in its fullness, that still seems like a future look. And I would say, you're right. We will see this made perfect in the new earth. But the good news in Jesus is it starts now. God will restore now through Christ and His people who come home. That's the life that redemption calls us to exemplify and enjoy. So I started off by giving a nod to Dr. King's speech title, I've Been to the Mountaintop. And, 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 I, and I titled again this message, We've Been to the Mountaintop. Now, when Micah is calling his people up there to take this look, they haven't, they haven't been there yet. He's inviting them up to see it, right? But what they see is a future look. What I want us to understand, church, is that because we know that the fulfillment of all these things is in Christ, we have a unique position of standing atop that hill in reality. We're not just looking forward anymore. We can look to the present and know that because we are in Christ, we can say confidently, we have been to the mountaintop. This is God's gracious gift to us. This is the life we have in Jesus. This is why we can sing praise to Him. God is good. And again, if, if you need to be reminded that one last time because it's still hard for you to hear, there is hope for you in Christ. If you are feeling the weight of sin, remember, God always keeps His promises. His ability to forgive sin is grace. It's amazing. It finds its center in Jesus. In Christ, you can have and experience the good life that God has intended to, or for you. All He's saying to you is, come home. Come home. Let me pray. Father, we thank You for this good news. And as we've said over the last few weeks, we know it's important that we, we walked through the valley a little bit. We know that it was important that even as we could believe that You are you were restoring everything, that You were going to make everything right, that You had to show us what was wrong first. So I thank You that You've 
done that. I thank You that, that, that we've had to come face to face with sin. We recognize that we're no different than Your people in Israel and Judah. We are sinners too. We're idol worshipers too. We run to all kinds of other things. We've rebelled against You. We've turned our backs on You. And yes, Lord, we can admit, many of us, that, it, that there are times when it, it, it certainly feels like, Lord, Your anger is burning against that. It feels like Your face has been turned away. But remind us, Lord, that we sit on this side of the cross of Jesus Christ. That if, if we've come to Jesus and trusted in Him for our salvation, we can believe anew that Your compassion is real. That Your mercy is certain. That Your steadfast love endures forever, Lord. So help us not just to come home, but to stay home to live in You, to walk in You, to praise You, because it is in You that we find the good life. Thank You. Oh, praise Your name. Amen.